Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. There is nothing normal about the pandemic or COVID times. And I think that humanity as a whole was backed into a corner with the virus. And so looking to the, the handful of individuals or companies who could get out of that, get us out of the, that corner, I think we were willing to pay for it. And, and we are. Hello, I'm Danielle Smith. Welcome to another episode of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. And today I am delighted to have join us Christina Acri. She is a professor of economics in the Department of Economics and Business at Colorado College. And we are going to be talking about a very topical and timely issue, which is pharmaceutical drug patents, intellectual property. Professor Acri, thanks so much for being with me today. It is an absolute delight. Thank you for having me. I don't think any of us expected that we would be talking nonstop about drugs and vaccines and biologics and mRNA. I think we all feel like we are partial experts in this field. I, I don't know that I ever spent much time talking about the intellectual property framework for for drugs or or pharmaceuticals as I have in the in the last 18 months. So I think we all sort of feel like we're partial experts, but I, I want to see if we can cover a little bit of ground so that we understand why a framework for investment in 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 pharmaceutical drugs in patent drugs is so important but let's sort of put it in the context of of covid because there were a lot of things that happened very quickly and a lot of uh, of expedited timelines for research and a lot of emerging new medications that i think surprised a lot of people and i want to understand a little bit about how you're seeing the the, the last 20 months? Has it been more success than failure? Or do you think this is uh, showing that, that, that certain parts of the system are working? I think the system is working. I think the fact that we have a vaccine and even multiple vaccines is a sign of the system working and the success that the industry has had in addressing a crisis on, on fairly short, short notice. I think that this is technology that has been a long time in, in the works. It's something that they've had um, and been experimenting with. But when the moment came, I think that they did an excellent job in getting us treatment as quickly as, as they possibly could. Could you chart that out a little bit? Because in, in some ways, I think, I think we have to acknowledge there's a little uneasiness with how quickly some of these vaccines came to market because it doesn't normally happen on such a, a, a fast time frame. But as you said, a, a lot of these remedies have been in the works for some time. And so I wanna understand a, a little more about why this new type of vaccine is uh, something that, that was able to come to, to market so relatively quickly. Like, tell us what the, what the history is, because I think we're accustomed to being, to a vaccine being that you take a, dead uh, a, a dead virus and it causes an immune reaction but these aren't that there's something else so so tell us about this world of biologics so that we can try to piece together why why we find ourselves in this place so biologics thank you for the question this is extraordinarily important and and good to good to start here and understand 
Biologics are a much more complicated type of medicine than traditional chemical medicines. Um, traditional medicines are very few, relatively speaking, um, molecules that are brought together, and therefore they are relatively easy to replicate. Biologic medicines are actually produced within living cells. So this is something that is far more complicated on the order of tens of thousands of times more molecules and more complications than traditional medicines are. It's something that has been developed within the last couple of decades that is showing great promise um, and obviously can be applied in more circumstances than, than traditional medicines or gives us an avenue to explore when traditional medicines fail. The biologics that were used in the development of the COVID vaccines were things that were developed initially for SARS. So when we had the, the SARS outbreak a number of years ago, this was something that was started and then shelved because the, the crisis didn't devolve, develop into what we see today. So it was something that they were able to pick up off the shelf and start start working with again. Well, that it's makes some, sense. Yeah. It, it's something that that is much more uncertain given that it's more complicated. There are more questions about how a biologic will work in the human body. Um, so it's something that that we have to be more cautious with. It's something that we want to both take advantage of, given the the promise that's there, but also be cautious along the way. So, do you think that we're moving to a world where we're going to have, <clears throat> by, pardon me, biologics instead of the traditional type of vaccines or the traditional type of chemical uh, molecules that we've had for for for, for medicines? in the past, is this sort of a, a turning point for us in the development of new treatments? I think it is a turning point. I don't think that we will abandon traditional medicines. I think that they will always play an important role. I think that one of the limitations we have is that we have explored a lot of the promise that traditional medicine holds for us and biologics is a whole new world. And so I think that these are things that will be used in tandem. I can see them them continuing in parallel to develop more traditional medicines as well as more biologics. But I definitely think that the future in terms of addressing more complicated health problems as well as tailoring medicines to an individual lies within the, the realm of biologics. Tell, tell me a little more about how biologics are, are going. Just give me some idea of the promise because I guess I'd always thought that these were the type of, of remedies that were being developed for things like cancer or I don't even know if it's Huntington's disease, which it doesn't have, <clears throat> which is a genetic disease, but it doesn't have a cure. Or maybe some of the ones that have been so difficult for us to treat, like Alzheimer's and MS. I, it, it didn't occur to me that this would be an obvious way to treat a mutating respiratory coronavirus. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if in the future, are we going to see more drugs like this for this type of, of, uh, of respiratory virus? Or is it going to be to treat some of those diseases that, that, I, that I mentioned? I'm just trying to understand where this, where this began and where it's likely to go. And I think the answer is that we will see it treating both. Hmm. I think that given the success that we have seen with the COVID vaccines in treating this type of disease, I think that we can expect more of that in the future. And I think that the research on, as you mentioned, the things that have been hardest and most difficult for us to, to address medically, um, ailments of the brain, genetic diseases, some cancers, I think that the greatest promise we have in those areas will also be with, with biologics.
So I want to, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like a negative Nancy, but we're in the process right now in Canada of rolling out third doses and in Israel, they're rolling out four doses. I guess I would put it to you that there is a danger that they may have oversold the benefit of this, that I think a lot of people thought it was going to be a sterilizing immunity and that it would be something we could eradicate like we did with smallpox or polio. And the more you add on additional boosters, I, I wonder if that's actually diminishing in the minds of people, the effectiveness of these drugs. Do you think there's that danger? I certainly think there is. There's vaccine hesitancy for a host of reasons. And I think the fact that they're now encouraging a second dose, a third dose, now obviously even a fourth dose, um, I think that does raise questions for people and, and contribute to that uh, as well. I do believe that it's something that we probably could have expected. This is a this is a whole new world. It's a it's a new virus. It's a new drug, and so I think that to expect that they knew exactly how it was going to perform in the real world in the human body, I think, is expecting too much. So I think we could have anticipated that there would be some some change in direction once things were developed. But I, I think you're exactly right that there's definitely a percentage of the population that sees this as raising questions for them about whether or not this is a good thing. So let's then talk, because we're going to have to spend a lot of time talking about how our response to uh, it introducing the, these remedies have differed from how we normally bring patent drugs on stream, but, uh, and, and, and whether there's some nuances now in, in what we need to do with intellectual property. But I want to go back to the world that we're more familiar with, which is traditional patent, patent drugs, just to understand the, the regulatory framework that optimal uh, from your point of view versus where Canada is at, because I, I, I think that there is some appetite for generics to come on stream as quickly as possible so that once we've identified a drug that works, we want as many people to get it as, uh, to get it as they can and get it at an affordable price. But there is this, this, uh, this patent protection where we give a monopoly period for a patent drug uh, for a period of time. And I'm, I'm, I want to sort of chart out where the traditional approach has been, and then we'll, we'll move into biologics. We'll return to this issue, but, but tell us a little bit about, about where this intellectual property around patent drugs, how did that develop? Give us a bit of a history lesson. So patents have been around for, for ages since the founding of, of many, many countries. And it's something that is used to incentivize innovation. So if you come up with a brilliant idea, then in exchange for making that idea and that information public, I will give you, as the government, I will grant you a monopoly for a fixed period of time. And a patent is currently 20 years, um, 20 years of effective patent life. In terms of pharmaceuticals, this is something that is extraordinarily important, both in terms of biologics and traditional medicines. And that's because pharmaceutical research and development is risky. So we know that only three out of 10 will ever earn enough money to recover their costs. It's something that is expensive um, in the order of $2 billion to develop a new chemical entity at this point. The number is very controversial, but it's, it's a big number. It's a lot of money. And it's something that's time consuming. So developing a new drug, going through animal trials, clinical trials, getting the drug approved, marketing exclusivities, it eats up time. All of those things are going to necessitate incentivizing investors to put their money into these, these discoveries. 
And in order to do that, we offer them a monopoly for a, for a limited period of time. Once the patent clock begins, most companies will have a, an effective patent life where the drug is on the market and they have patent protection for somewhere between 10 and 12 years. So of the full 20, they get about half of that to recover their investment. And yes, we want to see generics come to market quickly, but we also want to see new medicines being developed. And so the patent system is the, the compromise that we have reached in order to incentivize new drugs, but not give them a lifelong monopoly. So I guess the question would be then, it, we're, we're moving very fast in this new information age. And that seems to be a model for a slower time. I mean, I think back to when iPhone and iPad first entered the scene. I think it was, I got my first iPad in 2012. And now it's revolutionized the way we get information, access information and share information. And it, it seems to me that, that there's a development of new apps every single day, hundreds of them. And there's a real robust uh, generation of ideas happening in the tech space. And it seems like we've got a pretty plodding 20 year old style approach on pharmaceuticals. I'm, I'm wondering if we need to um, update it because maybe the solution is finding a way to get through the regulatory process faster so that you have the access to market first as the first mover, that's where you make your money. And maybe the, the problem is that we're taking so long to approve some of these. It's certainly a question to be raised now in this new COVID era where we've seen that we can expedite the process when we choose to. Maybe the problem is the process and, and trying to, to hang on to an outdated process in this new information age. Maybe that's not going to work anymore. And I think you I think you raise important questions. I think in contrasting the, the tech developments with pharmaceuticals, one of the key issues there is how you commercialize this. How do you make money on this? And in selling their apps, they have a very straightforward way of, of earning a return on the, the time and money that they put into that. Pharma is a little bit different given that we have to process it through the human body and we therefore want to make sure that it's safe. So the regulatory process is designed in order to make sure that when products do hit the market, they are safe. Um, and we know that it's not perfect. We know that there are drugs that are withdrawn because additional things come up after they've been, been marketed. And we may pull them from the market if we determine that they aren't safe. Uh, but I think a lot of that time is used to make sure that these are things that are safe for consumption by people. So talk to me about what the world of generics look like. Give me an understanding because I, I, always, I, I feel like Canada has put more of an emphasis on trying to encourage the, the generic space to have more generic op, um, op opportunities and have been a slightly less accommodating of, um, of, the, of the patent rights or patent periods for, for drug companies. So, so just chart it out a little bit for us about where generics fit in. So generic drugs are brought to market upon the expiration of the patent. So when the patent expires, it's usually within the day that generic drugs will make it to market and be available in lieu of the branded drug. Generic companies have access to the information, the recipe, so to speak, within the patent as soon as it's filed and made public. And so they are ready to leap into the market as soon as it's, it's possible for them. And they need to across fewer regulatory hurdles than the branded drug. So as long as they can establish that their drug is similar enough 
to the, the branded drug, then they don't have to run through all the clinical trials. Establishing that it's equivalent is, is necessary. Going through all the clinical trials um, is not. So they can move much more quickly than a branded drug can, and they can do it at much less cost. So bringing a generic drug to, to market, especially with a traditional molecule, is on the order of two to five million dollars compared to a billion dollar investment by the by the branded firm. Mm. As a result, they don't have the, the expenses to recover. So yes, they are able to bring their product to market at much lower cost than the innovator company is um, at, the, at the beginning of the process. So tell me how the dance works then between the patent drug companies and the generics. So it sounds like you've got the generics just waiting for the moment that their drugs come off patent so they can get straight to market. Does that mean that the patent drug companies are able to come up with sort of a new patented version that's better than the old version? Is that, is that, does that often happen? It depends on the drug. Um, and I wouldn't say that it's a new patented version. It's going to be a, a new product. So it may be that I have a particular pill that treats a particular ailment. And then going towards the end of, of the patent life, I come up with an extended release version. So that's protected with new patents because it operates in a new way. So the generic version of the once, twice, five times a day pill, pill is available, but I will have additional protections for the extended release, um, for the extended release capsule that's, that's the new innovation that comes along. And yes, they do innovate and improve and continue to, to change their products, um, both because it's a source of revenue and also because it's a, it's a benefit to society, that there is, there is something new about the, the new version that is beneficial to some segment of the population. Well, talk to me about that because there we've seen a, an escalation in the amount of, of, of budgets that go towards pharmaceutical drugs. And I think it's part of the reason it's got getting the attention of politicians about cost containment is what do we do about this? But you know what I've often wondered is, and if there's been good studies on how much money gets saved by using a new uh, and their and uh, pharmaceutical remedy versus the traditional way of treating that. I think I think the thing that comes to mind is how we used to treat ulcers with surgery until we found out that it was caused by uh, a bacteria, and then we were able to use a pharmaceutical drug. But I don't know if anybody's ever really done that analysis where you show that sure it's costing us more on the pharmaceutical side, but look at all of the savings that we have because we're we're be, we're able to displace a bunch of traditional remedies. Can you give us a, give us some insight or even some examples? There's a, a doctor of economics at Columbia University, um, Dr. Lichtenstein, and he has studied exactly precisely this question and his finding year after year um, with drug after drug updating his study is that pharmaceutical products save us two to three times as much in hospitalization and other medical costs. Um, over and above the, the cost of the medicine. So ulcers is an excellent example of a tremendous amount of resources that are not necessarily used through hospitalizations and surgeries when this could be treated now with, with simple drugs that are taken daily. Okay. Let's then talk about the Canadian environment because we have, have taken a different approach in how we set prices for patent drugs is that the patent medicine prices review board. And I don't know if this is a model unique to Canada, if other countries do it, but, but it, it, I'm sure most people don't know how it works. So you're going to have to explain a little bit about how we've taken this approach because it's not a pure 
free enterprise system where the drug company is able to set whatever price they like, we have some restrictions over how they set prices. And tell us, tell us why. This is something that is, is very common in the world. The United States is actually the only free market for drugs that, that exists. Most countries operate with some sort of medicine review board, whether it is setting limits on prices, whether it's looking as Canada does at a, at a variety of countries in order to set the price. But this is something that's very, very common. And the way in which the Canadian model works is that they have a collection of countries and they look at what price a particular drug is sold at, at, at these, in these other countries, 13 markets. And then they decide that we're, we're not going to allow the drug to be sold in Canada for more than the average price across these markets. So what it does is it gives you a reference for how this drug is priced in, in similar countries. Um, and then allows a maximum price that's set in Canada in order to keep drug prices down, in order to facilitate the negotiation between the drug company and the Canadian government and providers. So you're saying that it's a routine situation where a patent drug company would, would price their product differently in every market that they go to? Absolutely. It's called, in economics, this is known as differential pricing. And obviously, a individual or a country's ability to pay for a drug is going to depend upon a number of things. It depends upon your level of development, the average income level within, within a country, um, upon an, a number of things. And pharmaceutical companies are very attuned to that and will adjust the price country by country, market by market, in order to maximize their sales and also make sure that the drug gets to as many people as, as possible. Give me an idea of what range you can have of our 13 countries. Are they, I, I, I don't know if they try to look at countries that have a similar profile, similar um, uh, level of income, similar GDP, so that there's some similarity between them. And so the price range is quite narrow or if it's quite broad, can you give an example? So the, the list of countries that, that Canada has traditionally used included the United States and Switzerland, who both have significantly higher drug prices than Canada does, but it also includes countries like Italy that have lower prices than, than can, the Canadians are paying. So there is a range. I wouldn't say that it's particularly narrow, but they are countries that are all similar, relatively speaking, similar to, to Canada. So there aren't any Latin American or African countries in, in the list, for example. They're all Western developed high income countries that are that are the points of comparison for Canada. Okay, so in the absence of a free market, um, and you've got a company that has the, you know, essentially 20 years to be able to set the price they want, this actually seems like a pretty reasonable approach for a small country like Canada to, to try to get some kind of fair pricing. Is it not? I think I think it is. I think okay. it is. The Canadian market is only 2% of the global pharmaceutical market. So as you said, it is relatively small. And this is a very transparent, logical means of finding a fair price that both they and the company can agree on in order to get the drugs to Canadians at affordable levels. Now, do the patent drug companies love it? Or is there a problem with us being able to get sufficient supply because they feel in some cases they're not able to charge what they otherwise would like to? They don't love it. <laughs> so clearly they don't love it and would love to charge more in all markets. 
um, to, to be more profitable, obviously. Um, and in, in some cases, it, it is problematic. There are examples of drugs that have not been launched in Canada because the, the company didn't feel that they were offered a fair price. So they delayed or refused to enter the Canadian market because it wasn't something that was, that was economically viable. I think there's, there's sufficient evidence that the process does mean that Canadians are going to have to wait longer for new and life-saving drugs than other countries will because the environment is, is less economically favorable than some other places. So what is the rule then? Is um, I mean, I suppose if there was a really promising drug and we couldn't um, get it uh, sourced here, wouldn't we be just be able to buy it in one of those other markets where it is available? Presumably, yes. Um, I mean, pharmaceuticals are one of those things that are rather complicated in, in terms of how you get them. You have to receive a prescription from a doctor. And in some markets, that has to be a prescription that's written by a local physician. So you can't drop in on Italy and fill your, your prescriptions that are written by a Canadian, Canadian doctor. And that can be expensive. So yes, it's an option, but it's probably an option that's only available to a, to a relatively wealthy segment of the population. Is there a way for a more formal sourcing process, whether because we have a system in Canada where we have uh, federal government responsible for some portions of of the health system, including the, the, the board that we're talking about, but the provincial governments all have their own formularies and the things that they will cover, I believe, under their, their various drug plans. But is there some way that Canada uh, could go out into the market and be purchasing patent drug from other countries or in collective action or if a province can do that or is that part of the the deal with patent drugs is that you've got to deal directly with the with the company and there isn't a, a workaround that's a wonderful question and it's it's something that we are working with clearly here in the united states right now we are very interested in going to canada and buying up all of your drugs because they are so much more affordable than what we can get them for here and the result is that the pharmaceutical companies have said, well, we're going to limit supplies to Canada. So if the Canadians decide to sell their cheap drugs to patients in the United States, they will no longer be available for, for Canadians. And I imagine if the Canadians decided to go to Belize to buy their drugs, then the pharmaceutical companies would limit supply to Belize to make sure that that, that didn't happen. So there's, there's definitely... There's a tension between the supply that's available and the price that is is charged in each country, and they they do have a system that allows them to manage that um, to some extent, if not well. I think it feels a bit like the the pharmaceutical company holds all the cards here. I think that's maybe what make was making me a little uncomfortable is that I I I'm a I love free enterprise, believe in law of supply and demand, but because we're essentially granting them a monopoly for 20 years, we're having to try to find additional regulations that then would, would, would simulate what would actually happen in a, a free market. Is, is that the way to be thinking about it? Is that we, we are essentially granting them a monopoly for 20 years? We are granting them a monopoly. I mean, that's what a patent is. A patent is an exclusive right to use that piece of information. In terms of the pharmaceutical industry, it doesn't it doesn't actually translate into a 20-year monopoly because they're going to use up half of that time doing the testing. So they've got a, a monopoly in essence for eight or maybe 10 years. 
That said, there's also competing therapeutic classes. So I may have drug A, but you've got drug B. And even though I have a monopoly on the production of drug A, it treats the same disease as drug B. And so they are in essence competing within the marketplace. Even though there's not a generic available, there are other therapies that are out there. So depending upon how narrowly you define a monopoly in a, in a therapeutic class, there's, there's likely competition out there. There are very few therapies for which there is truly only one, one drug that is available. So, so tell me about this other uh, change that came in in Canada. And I want to understand if this is also something that's common in the world is Canada's Patent Act had compulsory licensing in it. And my, my, the, the notion I think behind that, and you can correct me if my understanding of it is wrong, is that rather than grant a monopoly, you do allow for others to produce and prescribe the drug, but they have to pay some kind of royalty back to the original company so that there is at least a revenue stream. But then you are able to get more prescriptions, uh, treat more patients at a lower price with, without without uh, infringing completely on the, uh, on the on the right of the company to, to continue to, ma to maintain and reimburse or recover some of his R&D costs. Am I, am I thinking about compulsory licensing properly or is there a nuance I'm missing? You, you are thinking about it correctly. Compulsory licensing is something that is enshrined in international law. It's part of the, the World Trade Organization's TRIPS agreement, the, the um, ability of countries to use it, but only under extraordinary circumstances. So it is something that's available in the case of a national emergency. And yes, then basically the government snatches the patent rights, provides them to a generic producer who then pays a minimal royalty for their use, and the supply of the, the drug is available more widely at lower cost. Okay, so I think there are some libertarian economists who think that this uh, this world of intellectual property could be governed that way with compulsory licensing. That would be actually closer to a, a free enterprise system. Do, do, you, do you agree with those arguments? I, I do not. Um, in fact, it's something that I think would, would truly undermine innovation. I think that if the pharmaceutical companies went into the inventive process with the uncertainty that their patent rights might be snatched away through compulsory licensing, there would be much less incentive to actually invest a billion or two dollars in order to develop a new therapy. If at the end of the road, I've got a drug that works and then all I receive is a minimal royalty stream, that's not, that's not gonna cover my costs, that's not gonna be worth it. And I'm better off not investing in that product and not bringing that, that drug to market at all. Okay, so let's then bring it into this environment that we're dealing with, with the, the vaccines, because you're right, there actually are quite a number of competing vaccines out there. And what is the, why is that? Why, why is it that a, a, if we've got patent law, why is it that different jurisdictions are able to affirm multiple different drugs? It, how, does, how does intellectual property factor in, in that environment? So, Intellectual property patents in particular are available whenever you have a discovery that is new, novel, um, and, and important and, and commercially viable. So it's something that is available as long as you can establish that your vaccine is different than somebody else's vaccine, both of them are eligible for patents. And the more choices we have that are available, obviously the better off we are as, as a global community. There will be some drugs that work better in some people than others. And having those choices 
um, is a valuable thing. And patents ensure that your innovation is rewarded and so is mine. So we talk about the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines as both being mRNA vaccines, both having this nano lipid encasement, both needing to be refrigerated uh, at a lower level than we've seen. But is there any real difference between the two? We talk about them as if they're the same, but are they? I believe there's probably far more significant differences than than I can I can begin to think about. Um, I heard heard somewhere that the the Pfizer vaccine has um, an instruction list, if if we can call it that, um, a set of directions that is comprised of 20 million steps. And if there if there are that many complications in going through and, and producing this thing, I'm sure that there are significant differences from from the other mRNA vaccines that are that are out there. It's a tremendously complex process, and and slight variations are clearly going to be important in in the discovery in in both cases. Okay, and then we talk about AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson as being DNA based viruses uh, vaccines. Are 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 they? Do you know? Can you? That was a great example to help us understand why Pfizer and Moderna might be different. Are you able to have a similar illustration for why those two might also be able to coexist, even though they would be separate patented products? The technologies are different. They Their starting points are different. The process by which the, the vaccine is developed and works in the body will be will be slightly different. They, they are made by different companies in different processes. Um, not being a scientist, I can't speak to it more than that, but there are differences that are significant enough that the the governments that have granted the patents believe that they are separate innovations and discoveries. So interesting. Okay. So the way of, uh, correct my terminology in case I have it wrong. So we were talking about patent drugs and generics. We are now talking about biologics and the equivalent is biosimilars. So tell me how the world operates here. Maybe use these as an example. So they came to market very quickly. Um, does that mean that they're did did you said but you also said that they were basing this on research that they'd done in the past so what is the patent protection for for Pfizer's vaccine or Moderna's or AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson what is the what is the the legal framework look like for for these particular biologics when can come when can a generic company come along and create a biosimilar a biosimilar could be could be created as soon as the patent on the biologic drug all the patents on the biologic drugs expire because I'm sure that there are probably dozens of patents on on each of these drugs for for different innovations. The technology that has been in existence for for a number of years is the mRNA technology. So it was used previously in the in the process in the search for a SARS vaccine, and then shelved. And it was that that technology, that recipe book, so to speak, that was picked up again for the the COVID vaccine. But the treatment for a particular virus makes it a different innovation, a different drug. And so could it could it be that they still have, since it's been on the market for less than a year, could it be that they have 19 years left under that patent? They will have 19 years left under some patents. There will obviously be some of the technologies that were developed before COVID hit, and those patents will expire earlier. And if if those patents expire earlier, then that technology can be available to generic producers or biosimilar producers earlier than than the than the other technologies that have more lengthy patents. So here's where it gets complicated for me is that 
under a normal circumstance where you've got companies taking a risk to do this R&D investment, I can see why you'd make the argument that they need a period of time to make their money back. But in the case of, of these vaccines, what has happened is the government's given a lot of money. They've almost been a co-developer and co-supporter and co-funder. But in addition, I don't think anybody's paying out of pocket for a vaccination. And I don't think any insurance companies are paying out of pocket either. It looks to me, certainly in Canada, that it's 100% government funded. So if you have taxpayers supporting the R&D process, taxpayers saying sky's the limit, we will buy as much as you need, no one will have to pay out of pocket. Uh, apparently the contract saying that you have to continue to buy as much as you've contracted for or pay for it. Um, so we kind of are on the hook for several tens of millions of, doll uh, of, of doses, as I understand it, for some of these vaccines. That seems to be the quid pro quo where you'd say, you know what, you made your money back. You don't get 19 years this time because we have more than compensated you for the, exp for the fact that you expedited your research and the amount that you sunk into that. Am I, am I looking at this the wrong way? I don't think so. I think that that could have been part of the negotiation. It could have been at the onset when the government agreed with these companies to support the development of these drugs and then purchase the doses. They could have they could have required under those circumstances, then you forfeit your patent rights. My understanding is they don't, did not do that. Um, but it would it definitely would have been something that was on the table at the time at which the, the contracts were signed. But do you think that the governments had the power to do that? Because when I'm sort of going back through history, looking at what happened in Canada, we had a false start in trying to negotiate with the with a, Ch a Chinese company to do our own uh, project to, to, to develop the vaccine here. When that fell apart, our government had to quickly scramble to develop deals. And there was a lot of criticism that they were late to the table. But they're being late to the table means that you have to kind of sacrifice a few things in the negotiations. The contracts aren't clear, so we don't know exactly what it is that we sacrifice. But did it? Did governments really have that kind of power to negotiate with these companies? It, it doesn't sound to me like they would have, because essentially the company would have just said, okay, you're bottom of the list. And you're probably right. You're probably right. I think they could have tried that. Um, it's obviously a strategy that they did not feel was going to be effective or successful. And so they didn't. Um, it was an option that was out there, but you're you're probably right. Under under the circumstances in which hundreds of thousands of people were dying and needed a treatment immediately, we were all under the gun. And, and you're right that that handed tremendous marketing, um, tremendous negotiating power to the to the firms that were that were working on the vaccines. I guess the reason I find it complicated is that now I'm trying to figure out what is the path forward? What is the smart way of approaching this? If we've signed a deal that essentially gives a 19-year um, patent, we've already heard that the head of Pfizer has said that, yeah, we gave you a deal on the first doses, but the actual cost of these should be more like $150 per dose. That seems like one of those areas where you'd say, hmm, we need to revisit these terms. But can you do that? I don't know how ironclad this world of intellectual property is. It seems to me we can make a big case about why it is that with future doses, if this is going to be a once a year or twice a year, and it's going to go on for the next 19 years, if you've locked into one particular type of vaccine, it seems like there should be some way of us getting something more approaching competition and free market, considering they've more than made their money back on this one. 
and I think that 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 depends on how you how you calculate a return on investment. Hmm. Um, have they made back the money that they invested in developing it? Probably. Have they made five percent, which they could have gotten on interest in the bank? Probably. They took on a lot more risk than that, and they would they would argue that they need to be compensated for taking on that risk and and traveling down this path. Um, I think that there's there's definitely a an argument to be made in that nature, and I think that there's also um, and this is sort of a whole other other area to explore is the ability to separate pricing from the incentive to invent, and is it is it fair that people who are sick are the ones that bear the cost? of paying for the medicine that's used to treat them? Or is this something that society as a whole should bear the cost for? Um, and right now, the way in which the, the system works is that if you are the unfortunate person struck with a disease, then you are the one who will bear the cost of, of the medicine that treats you. Um, we could imagine a world in which all pharmaceutical um, research and development funds came from, from a, a centralized centralized fund and and then the drugs were made available um, at more more affordable costs and there was some prize given to the the pharmaceutical com company for their development um, we don't currently work under that that system so the way that the way that things are now is we've got a we've got a free market system in in the development of, of these technologies and companies are in, in they are rewarded for the risk that they that they take on. So I guess you know when you say rewarded for the risk, I guess that's the other part. And it and maybe the COVID era is just the exception to the rule, but because they've negotiated any shield from vaccine injury as well, like there's the that to me also takes away a lot of the risk of the company that um, the there is a vaccine adverse effect injury database, but the company is now not going to be responsible if there there's no going to be no civil litigation. Isn't that the other way in which you could make the argument that there has to be some parity here? I guess this is what I'm I'm sort of frustrated by. Is it seems like when we grant this monopoly, there if you grant a monopoly and you lock in for another 19 years. And the price is kind of out of your control and uh, they're, they're able to say, sorry, you don't get your supply and you're also shielding them from risk and you're helping them to develop it because you're paying the cost. I don't know. That doesn't sound to me very free enterprise. That sounds to me like there's there's one party that has way more power than the other. And I, I guess I thought it was, you know, maybe I'm being naive. When I go, when I go back to my my politi my uh, time in ec my economics program, one of the things we talked about is government's job is to prevent monopolies. And yet we're talking about government here maintaining and perpetuating and supporting a monopoly. And I'm so I'm struggling a little bit with this. And I understand I understand all of that. I think that there is nothing normal about the pandemic or COVID times. And I think that humanity as a whole was backed into a corner with the virus. And so looking to the, the handful of individuals or companies who could get out of that, get us out of the, that corner, I think we were willing to pay for it. Hmm. And, and we are. Is there, is there another model though? I'm just trying to think this through because I do a lot of research into the energy sector. And one of the things that we, we have is a royalty when you develop a resource. And what we do is we say, well, you're allowed to pay a lower royalty until you make back the cost of your capital investment. And then once you've made back the cost of your capital investment, we're going to charge you a higher royalty. I'm trying to think if there's an application here, if there's 
some way that a, a pharmaceutical company can declare what their R&D costs are up front and you give them a patent period based on them being able to recover a certain multiple of their R&D costs. There, it, it seems to me that there needs to be a, a different model. I mean, I think I read Pfizer already has $32 billion worth of profit this year. So I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that they would have exceeded that multiple. And I just feel like there needs to be maybe some more some more balance in this relationship. And I don't know if there's any models that we can turn to, but is there is there any other alternatives that we can look at? There are other alternatives and they've been developed by public health advocates, by economists, by lawyers. Um, there are a number of them out there. None of them seem to be as good as the actual patent system for bringing medicines to market. Um, and I, I think that we continue to tinker around the edges. There are um, there are a number of prizes. Um, so you can think about some of the, the large philanthropic organizations that are out there that will offer a prize. If you can develop a treatment for malaria that works in these ways under these conditions for these types of people and, and disease states, then we'll give you, uh, you know, a billion dollars or something. And there there is interest in that. Um, none of the alternative models that are out there have been as as successful in bringing drugs to market mm -hmm. as the the system that we have so the the replacement of the patent system with something else has has not been something that has occurred okay now all patent systems are not created equal though so tell us where canada finds itself at a disadvantage relative to the united states why does the united states have such a robust pharmaceutical market um, there are other countries that do as well. So what is the difference? Why, why isn't Canada the Mecca of, of research into new drugs? What is it that we're not, that we're not doing that's comparable? I think there are, there are a number of, of things. I think that the primary reason why the United States is the Mecca of, of drug development is that we have a free market for drugs. And so pricing is at the discretion of the companies. We don't have caps on the prices. We do not have government negotiations um, when drugs are developed. And for that reason, the free market incentivizes more investment and pharmaceutical development in the US. In terms of Canada, there is a, an environment in which, as you noted earlier, there's some, some preference for generic drugs over branded innovative drugs which makes the environment less attractive for, for those, the development of those drugs. Compulsory licensing is another issue um, that comes up. Um, data exclusivity is something too, whether or not the company's clinical research data is protected um, and is, is something that they can rely on with secrecy is, is another thing that, that Canada lags behind with a little bit. Um, so there are there are a number of aspects to the finer points of, of patent law that just don't quite measure up on the, the international scale in Canada as well as they do in other places. You're challenging my view of a free market because uh, it seems like there's a free market to compete to win a monopoly. And that is that maybe that's what I'm stumbling over, because in a in a free market, there's always when you when there's big profits to be made, that's when you get a new entrant who would come in and do a, a better product at a cheaper price, which would drive prices down. And that there doesn't seem to be really a mechanism for that in this world. Maybe, maybe it is because it's just an anomaly or is that, is there some way that 
it would operate like a truly free market where you would have somebody come in and it would bring prices down. Because the way you're describing it, it doesn't sound like there is an incentive for anyone to enter the market to 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 uh, to try to to mitigate costs. It seems like the reward is aha, we came up with something that works. Now we get to charge whatever we want for twenty years. And that there there's some truth to that. Um, but that reward out there for 20 years is out there available to everyone. So there is continuous innovation and companies compete with one another. There is there is no single um, protease inhibitor out on the market now. There's so no single painkiller out on the market. There's continual innovation within drug classes, within therapeutic categories to create competing products that do things better for a, a larger segment of, of the population. I think that one of the things that is so unique about the pharmaceutical industry is that once the innovation has been made, it's really easy to copy. Once you know what goes into the drug, it's very easy to copy it and sell an imitation product. And that's what the patent buys us, is the assurance that not everybody can just go out and start copying it and selling it for cheap, that there is a reward to all the effort and time and money that went into the innovation process. All right. So the, the new world of biologics, it sounds like the way you describe it is it's going to be a lot more complicated. So it sounds like it's going to be a lot more expensive. Is that what we've got to be bracing ourselves for is that we're going to see an, an escalation in the cost of, of pharmaceutical drugs? Because there's already, as I mentioned earlier, there's already a bit of nervousness on the part of, uh, of the politicians making the decisions about these things, that they're seeing such an escalation in the cost of pharmaceuticals. What, what does the world of biologics look like when it comes to price? I think you're exactly right. I think there will be an increase, in part because these are drugs that are difficult to produce and more expensive to produce than their much more chemically simple counterparts. The other issue with biologics is the fact that once you have the recipe, so once you've got the process by which the drug was designed, it's not that easy to create a biosimilar. So the biosimilar, both in its production as well as in its testing and regulatory process, isn't as straightforward as a traditional generic. So while a traditional generic can be manufactured for a fraction of the cost of the innovator drug, a biosimilar can't. And so when we when we contrast the innovator product with the biosimilar, we won't see the tremendous drop in cost that we do with mm. generic drugs. So I think that both of those factors are gonna lead to drugs that are more effective and they're more sophisticated, but they will be more expensive. So I guess this is the question. I mean, are we going to, in the future, be able to have a choice as a consumer? Because that might be the other thing that drives the competition. Um, if you've got a really expensive biologic, but you could also continue with a traditional therapy, or maybe there's a generic drug that would work, are we going to have those choices? Because it, it doesn't seem like we have the choice in this environment. Uh, I don't think that you've gone down the same road that necessarily that Canada has, but Canada doesn't offer anything other than vaccine. There isn't a a therapeutic option in some countries there there is but i'm wondering if that's going to be the case is that as biologics develop and become the standard of care does that mean that traditional ways of treating are, are, are not going to be produced or going to be phased out and is there a role for consumers to have that choice if, if people are price sensitive and they see the price should they be able to have that choice is that a way that you can create some of that that market response is by bringing the consumer into the picture? 
you raise such such wonderful questions and this is this is something that is probably not in the consumer's hands this is probably something that will be negotiated by the insurance company so i don't actually pay the the cost of the drugs that i purchase i have a copay that that comes out of my pocket but my insurance company decides what are the available treatments that they will cover and what will be the cost that they will pay to the the pharmaceutical companies for those things and i think as long as the insurers can save money through traditional therapies, through um, alternative mechanisms, that those will be things that are available. It's also a, a question of, of choice by the physician. So it's my doctor who decides which drug I'm gonna take because of my biological state, my disease condition, um, and the factors that, that go into deciding that this therapy would be better than another. And I think that those are things that that will determine what that landscape looks like in the future. But I do believe that both will be available and that consumers as well as physicians and insurance companies will have that choice. Okay. Once again, you're challenging my view on what how, how free markets work, because now we've got a situation where a company with a patent can charge whatever they want and the consumer is shielded from the cost of their choices. And so we don't have transparent pricing and the, the pricing mechanism is supposed to be the, the beautiful invisible hand that, that, that helps to modulate the market, right? And get supply and demand matching. But if, if all of that is hidden from the customer and irrelevant to the doctor and not transparent in the decisions that the insurance company is making, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I think we're moving further away from, from free market principles, aren't we? You're exactly right. And the, the market for drugs and healthcare in general is characterized by all of those things. So how do we correct that? If, if I want to be a purist <laughs> and I want to see transparent prices and I want consumers to be able to make informed decisions and I want companies to be responsive to, to consumer choices, is there a way to fix it or does the does the model just not work? I think the complications of healthcare and the number of intermediary agents in it um, mean that it's very difficult to correct that. I think that we that we could have a lot of government regulations that would say that you know these are going to be the prices. This is what's going to be paid by by these individuals by these institutions, and that would give us the transparency we need. But it also removes some of the choice. Um, so I don't I don't see a clear cut way to to strip out the layers. Um, and all the actors that are that are involved in the market at this stage. Oh dear, I was really hoping that I wouldn't <laughs> have to ask this question, but I guess I'm going to have to because it, it, we're sort of now ending up with the fact that we do have insurance companies, but more so, especially in our market, uh, government entities that believe that it is their job to step in and create a national pharmacare program. And in, in talking through this about all of the cards that are stacked against uh, an individual insurer or a consumer and trying to negotiate with the companies, it, it's almost driving me to think that maybe, maybe we do need to have more government uh, control in this area. And so I, I want to talk that through a little bit with you about what, um, first of all, there's lots of ways that you can deliver on a government funded pharmaceutical program. Um, because we've got 10 provinces that are responsible for this, we could have 10 different pharmaceutical programs, or you could have the federal government step in and say, we're going to do one, one program for everyone. The, the, but that's not necessarily the only two models. So, so tell us how, how you would think through that. If, you, if cost containment is going to be the goal, 
and the cost of these is going to be out of reach of the average patient. What is the way to 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 be able to to negotiate these kinds of contracts or the coverage you would provide to make sure that we're dealing with some of the issues of equity that people are getting the care that they need when they need it? I think that I think that there is no one right answer to that. That there are a host of things that could work. I think that at the core of this is capitalizing on your negotiating power. And the larger the market is that you you bring to the companies that you're dealing with, whether that means that instead of just a single province, you've got all of them together that are that are negotiating, or Canada teams up with France and Italy and the three countries go in for the negotiations together. I think that mm. the the larger stake you have in in approaching um, with a large market with a significant purchase, I think the greater power you have in in making those those inroads. So where, where is there another nation similar to ours in size? Because you mentioned we're 2% of the market. So there's got to be plenty of nations who face this similar kind of challenge. And I, you've written about Switzerland and you've written about Netherlands. Maybe you can tell us a little about how they approach it. And you can, does that give us some guidance? Do they have a, have they got it right? I don't think that anyone necessarily has it right. I think it's it's figuring out what are the details of the system that work best for you. And I think that that the specifics of, of the Canadian market will be will be different than Switzerland or the Netherlands. And that looking at what your objectives are um, and what the what the people want, I think, is is more important than just adopting some other system um, at at face value. Um, and I think that I think even the preferences across provinces are going to be different. That, that not everyone in every place is going to want the same the same choices or the same options. Um, I think there's possibly a role for the federal government in negotiating um, for drug prices, but I'm not sure that you want all of the cards held by by the federal government instead of instead of having individual choice at the at the more local level. What would be the optimal way of making sure that you've got? Maybe that's the trade-off, right? Is that if you you either have to decide. Are you going to have maximum choice by the patient and the doctor to prescribe money is no object, or are you going to take some measures that have cost containment? Is that, is that, is that how the debate ends up coming down? I think it is. And I think part of, part of the issue on the cost containment side is that you cannot provide every drug that is on the market. You have to limit choices. And there will be some things that aren't on the formulary and aren't, aren't provided for the sake of, of containing costs and getting a better deal on the drugs that are on the formulary. So there is, there is a trade-off and, and there's a cost there. I wonder, again, if there's a way of trying to build in some more price transparency and consumer choice on this. What if you had a formulary, but you could pay the increment over if you wanted to upgrade to, uh, if you say, for instance, had a chemical drug, it's going to be covered. But if you want a, a biologic, it's an extra increment, but you can pay for that. Is is there anyone who prices that way? Probably not, because it would be the more expensive drug. And so we have this sort of approach where we try to cover more expensive drugs and make generics more pay out of pocket. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out if there's some way to bring the consumer into the mix. Because I know that the Fraser Institute have done studies on co-payments in the past when we have talked about this system as a whole. And I think they came up with some optimal amount 
that the consumer themselves has to pay in order to create the price transparency and also make some changes in decisions. So if you have to pay, I think it's 25%. If you have to co-pay 25%, then it becomes, oh my goodness, if I go to a hospital emergency room versus wait for my family doctor, that will save me some money. And so it creates some changes around how, how consumers make their choices. Is there a similar application we can apply to the pharmaceutical world? There, there certainly is. The insurance company that I have has one copay for generic drugs and a different copay for branded drugs. And the, the, the system that I've got has two tiers. There are plans out there that have more tiers. And as you, as you expressed, you could have traditional therapies at one level and biologics at another level. So it is possible to, to ramp up the pricing with different types of, of drugs, different types of therapies, different, different cures. Is that is that a common approach to take, or is that a? I mean, going back to America, because you said that they've got this free enterprise approach that attracts a lot of investment. Are they the most free in being able to provide that that kind of um, a, sort of seg segmentation in the market? I don't think we are. I think we have a, a couple of layers, and it'll vary across insurance plans too. So it depends on on who the who the provider is. Um, but I do think that other countries have been more creative in breaking that down to to finer levels than than we have. Is there I'm, I guess I'm wondering what how do we measure success and effectiveness? And should that be a consideration? Because the, there is a, a very high incentive based on how we've described how this market works there's a very high incentive to create a reformulation in order to reset the clock on, on the patent. And so is there some way that you we should be doing an assessment of how much more benefit we get out of this additional formulation versus a, a generic or versus a, a, a more cost-effective or more traditional approach? Do, does that feature in any of the literature at all? Is that something that we can use as a guide? It is, and it does. Um, there's an entire field known as pharmacoeconomics that is based in testing efficacy for, for dollars. So, so how cost effective are these things? And the British system has a minimum threshold. If we don't get this much additional health for the dollar, then the drug is not covered and it's not placed on the formulary. So there is a, a it's a social science um, that has has come about to to measure this, and it is utilized by some governments to make a determination as to whether or not the drug will will make it on the formulary. What are some of the factors that would go into determining that level of effectiveness? Is it um, years of life extended? Is it years of disability avoided? Is it less side effects? Like, what would be the the kind of measures we should be looking at? It's it's exactly that. Um, additional life years. So they measure both time as well as quality. So quality of life um, in terms of discomfort, in terms of functioning limbs, in terms of leading a normal life. All of those things are measured. And then, then there's a value, um, an actuarial value appointed to each of those to determine what's the value we get from this medicine and how much does it cost? And what does that, what does that trade-off look like? Are we at a point where I hate to sound like the head of the patent office saying, oh, we've invented everything that could possibly ever be invented. We better shut this down. I think there's a, I don't know if it's an apocryphal quote if it really existed from 1890 and obviously not true. But at some point, 
don't we reach the limit of what of what we can do? I mean, isn't there the a, a point where I mean, we as I've often said, none of us are getting out of this alive. We still haven't managed to extend life forever, and so there is sort of a, a limit to how much intervention you can do because at, at some point the body just stops working. Is there is there some point where we we might get to that where there's we've we've kind of reached the the limit of what science can do for people? Possibly, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Hmm. Um, so I, I heard an, an interview with with a scientist yesterday who talked about um, the fact that the the human body contains twenty thousand cells or twenty thousand uh, genes. And every cell contains all of our genes, but the degree to which they are turned on or turned off determines what that cell will do. So that's what makes the difference between a red blood cell and a kidney cell. And as long as we can get down to that molecular level and work on, on genes and cells, and I just, I think that that there's so much more to be done and we're we're in this for the long haul and it's it's going to be a very very long time before we run out of interventions and and ways to invent things so so just, just paint a, a picture of of what it is that we're in the middle of in a transformation to because I, I just spoke with a, a, a an entrepreneur yesterday who said that they're about to roll out genetic testing so sort of a, a, a sort of a cheaper version of genetic testing to make it more accessible and the way you've described it, it's almost like we'll all print out our own genome to learn about what our pre-existing conditions might be and then develop a tailored biologic treatment strategy to keep to make certain that those genes don't turn on. I, I, I don't know, just based on where what we've been talking about, I'm just trying to figure out what this shift in paradigm looks like. Are, do, have you done some reading on that? What, what does the shift look like? I think we are moving towards personalized medicine where there will be genetic testing that allows us to tinker with particular drugs and tailor them to the individual. I don't think it's science fiction any longer, but I don't think that we are anywhere anywhere near um, doing a very good job of that yet. I think that it's it's on the horizon, but it's still, still a ways out there. I guess then it makes me even more uneasy because we already have our healthcare system taking up about 50% of all of the revenues that are generated by government. We also have an attitude in Canada anyway about universality and a reluctance to talk about private pay out of pocket. And so, but this world that we're looking at, it's going to be extraordinarily more costly than the one that we have right now. And so I, I don't know that there's any way to avoid uh, discussion of cost containment or having an individual sh shoulder a portion of that cost. That's a pretty complicated conversation to have. It is a complicated conversation. And I think that I think that your comment about having individuals shoulder some of that cost is an important component there. I don't think that that governments can put forth the entire display, the buffet of all treatments and expect that, that they'll be able to cover the cost of everything for everyone. There will definitely, there, there will definitely be choices in the future. Well, I'm also then wondering, cause I, I've come across a couple of different groups that have been frustrated about our lack of market power in, in certain areas like rare disorders. And there's also a, a new um, individual that I've, I've found out who's chairing 
the neglected diseases department at the University of British Columbia. And it's funny, isn't it, that we, as we're getting more and more precise about providing treatments, the number of people in any one country who might need that treatment is going to be very small. And yet we've got these regulatory systems set up where we don't really have very much coordination or integration uh, across the world. So for instance, as someone who's got a rare enzyme disorder, wouldn't it be great if all the people of the world with that rare enzyme disorder were able to come together under one umbrella so that they had some market power in being able to negotiate for, for the best prices? And I don't know, like that, it, it seems to me we need those kinds of mechanisms, but we're very siloed in the way our regulatory decisions get made. Do you have some solutions for that? I don't. I think oh. you're I think you're exactly right that that it would be beneficial to the patients in the group to all come together and negotiate for prices. And before that, for them to all come together and to advocate for research into their diseases, because there are some conditions that are so rare, rare that no work is even being done on them because it's so it's so so the population is so very small that it's just not not feasible to to do work on those things. And if we could, in some sense, bring those global communities together, I think that that would open doors there too. Do you do any work in neglected diseases too? Because the way we've sort of talked about this is that the the richer the country, the more uh, investment dollars it's going to attract. But the richer the country also, the better the health, generally speaking. And it does leave me concerned about what do you do about neglected diseases in the poorer countries of the world? Because you, you to be able to bring those who are in impoverished countries up on a standard of living, you've got to deal with some of the baseline diseases that are in those countries. But the market that we're talking about doesn't seem to reward finding a, a solution for, I don't know, dengue fever or whatever, uh, there's some very unique diseases in both South America and Africa. And is that a problem? It is a problem. And that's why they're called neglected diseases is because they do not command the attention of the world or the pharmaceutical research industry. And these are things that are serious problems in terms of health and life and liberty in a lot of these developing countries. And they don't get the attention or or the research investment that, that they need. There are a number of mechanisms for encouraging that. Um, in the United States, if you develop a drug that treats a neglected disease, then you can get a patent voucher um, that can be used, applied to a, 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 a different drug. Um, so there are some incentives to, to capitalize on these things and encourage companies to work in these directions. But it is still definitely an area that is, is greatly overlooked. Is, do you have an example of whether or not there's much uptake on that type of approach, the patent voucher idea? It's an interesting one. There, I believe that there has been uptake. Um, it's been a while since I, I read the articles that, that put the numbers on that. But there, there's definitely a handful, if not a dozen, instances in which, which discoveries have been made that have, have qualified for these things. There's another uh, um, area that it seems to me there's uh, some neglect in research, and I don't know what the solution might be to it, but we have discovered so many molecules that are helpful, but there's always repurposing of drugs that can happen, but there doesn't seem to be an efficient way to do that for the, the reasons that we've talked about is the system set up entirely to reward the patent. And so there really isn't 
any money to be made in doing expensive research into finding out whether a generic drug can be applied to another disease. Is there, is there I, I, I recognize it's a whole, and there's the nice part about generics as well is that they out, would already have a well-known profile. So you know what the potential drug interactions might be, what it might be contraindicated for. So there's some value in trying to find a way to repurpose generic drugs, but there doesn't seem to be a market mechanism to make it happen. Have you given any thought to how you could create a more robust market in generics for repurposing existing drugs? Not beyond what you have just stated. I acknowledge that there's there's a hole there, that there are tremendous benefits in using drugs that we know are safe and effective for other treatments, but there is no incentive to test them and go, th go through the clinical trials, which are quite expensive for repurposing them for another another disease. So it's definitely it's definitely a fault within the, the existing system. Is there anything that you look at as being a big problem that requires a, a different type of solution? There are many things. <laughs> A number, of, a number of which we have we have talked about today. Well, we've talked um, about, you know, the, we've talked about um, problems, but I think the solutions are maintaining the system that we have. And I guess I'm I'm wondering if there's something that would move us more towards a a, a, a free enterprise system. If there's any uh, out of the box way that we could be thinking about how to address this this issue, because I I feel like all roads lead back to government all roads lead back to government regulation and reference pricing and uh, granting monopolies and funding research and trying to control prices and making the decision about what uh, patients can and can't have. So it leaves me feeling very uncomfortable because it feels to me like we don't have a free enterprise, a true free enterprise solution to this problem. And I don't think, I don't think that we do. Um, I think that the the ways around government intervention and, and thinking outside of the box have been left largely to large philanthropic organizations. Mm -hmm. The Gates Foundation has has done some creative thinking about about working on some of these problems. But as as always, money is a limitation and trying to figure out how we fund these things and think about them creatively and, and put the incentives in place is something that we just have not been able to do. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to go through all of this with me. I, I sure appreciate your observations. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. You bet. That's it. Christina Acri. Of course, she is Professor of Economics in the Department of Economics and Business at Colorado College, as well as a Senior Fellow of the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.